Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today, we are trying something new. I will continue putting out the Historical Jesus class on Thursdays, but I'd like to test out a new format on Sundays. My idea is to have a roundtable discussion about biblical Christianity. I've brought on a couple of conversation partners, and we want to try this out on you. My hope is that you'll find our conversation interesting and helpful. Right now, I'm not sure how often we'll be able to put this out, but your feedback will be key in evaluating if this idea is worthwhile. Please take the time to visit restitutio.org and drop a comment on this episode. Let us know how we did and how we can improve. For now, we are tentatively calling this series of discussions Restitutio Offscript. Without further ado, here is our first Offscript episode entitled Seeing the Filter. Why don't we start with introducing ourselves. My name is Sean Finnegan. I'm a pastor at Living Hope, and we're trying out something new, a roundtable discussion, and I have two co-hosts today, Dan and Rose. Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Sean. Um, my name is Dan Fitzsimmons. I'm a member of Living Hope, and my family's been uh, involved in Living Hope for a number of years, and uh, I live in the Capital District. Hi, I'm Rose. I'm fairly new to Living Hope. been here in the community about three years. I've um, been following Christ most of my life and seeking to follow him better and more carefully every day. All right, so today I want to talk about looking at the culture and seeing the filter that the culture is putting over our eyes. And to begin with, I want to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which reads, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this text for me is extremely important and challenging because what I come to realize is that this world is always shaping me. It's always squeezing me into a mold and it's really hard to even discern what ways that's happening. I'm interested in your thoughts. What do you, what's your experience with the culture shaping you? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think that you're either being shaped by the culture or you're being shaped by the Word of God. There's no stasis. You're not the one person that can sort of maintain an equilibrium where you can be steeped in the world and have it not affect you or, or your behavior or your thinking. I would say in my life I am shaped by both in different areas, and I think my thinking can be really biblical in one way, um, but then another part of my life has been very like schooled by the world. And that's sort of a source of frustration where even within myself, I am a product of both and want to identify that and become more a product of Christ. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different Christian ways of approaching this subject. There is a famous book that H. Richard Niebuhr wrote called Christ and Culture, where he talked about different ways Christians deal with the culture. And there's the idea of the Christ of culture, where basically you identify Christianity as like a civil religion and don't distinguish at all between Christ and culture. And then he had another category, Christ against culture, and that's the idea that whatever the world says is always in opposition to Christ. And then he laid out, of course, his own position last, which I think was Christ transforming culture. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't think I really agree with either. But anyhow, I, I think it is a question that as Christians we wrestle with because we see we see cultural forces at work and Christianity coming out of its privileged position. I think I've seen that in my lifetime, where you know I have friends who are embarrassed to say they're a Christian because of the ramifications at the job place, for example. But what I want to talk about here is how the culture is shaping us in good and bad ways, because it's not like everything Americans believe necessarily is bad. Like, I'm sure you guys can think of good examples as well as bad Mm -hmm. examples. One good example would be how the culture is really into humanitarian aid. You know, we had that whole earthquake in Haiti, right? And people just went crazy Mm -hmm. giving and supporting that. I think I heard that George W. Bush and Bill Clinton both went to Haiti together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like there there are some good aspects to the culture, too. Well, yeah, people were tripping over themselves to donate so much so that they fell for scams. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how enthusiastic the support was. I think a lot of our culture is based on Judeo-Christian principles. But in a lot of ways, I think we maybe have overextended the humanitarian side of that and taken it, you know, beyond just the dignity and the worth of the individual um, and making ourselves more than that. And, you know, the primary beings in our universe in the place of God. Going back to the idea of, of certain things in the culture being of value, I agree, but I think there aren't enough good things in this culture to overcome all of the many ways in which it negatively influences us, and especially in our relationship with God. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in the culture you have both good and bad things, and eating everything, for example, is going to probably lead to digestive problems. Yeah. So the real question becomes, how do we sift the good from the bad? Think of like a, a typical sitcom, like a Seinfeld episode. There, The show is really about a parking ticket, but meanwhile, the whole time against the backdrop of the show, you have Jerry hooking up with a different girl in each episode, and that never comes on the radar. The, the whole right. premarital sex issue is just part of the the furniture in the show, so to speak. You know, I'm just picking some sort of like obvious things here, but these influences reshape, I think, what our our normal is in our own head so that when we encounter a situation, it appears plausible or implausible. So, for example, a friend says to us, hey, I have this boyfriend. I really love him. I, I, I really don't want to lose him. I think I'm going to ask him to move in. And if you've allowed your mind to be shaped by a culture of cohabitation as normal, then you'll be more likely to not come against that or challenge your friend. Furthermore, when you read in the scripture where it says that sex is for marriage, for example, then you're going to feel uncomfortable about the scripture because it seems radical to you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so the culture is sort of like rewritten your sense of what's normal and what seems reasonable and what seems unreasonable. And I feel like that's happening in a million ways all the time to all of us. Yeah. Unless you live in a cave, it's, it's, (laughs) you're not going to avoid that. Uh, So why shouldn't we live in caves? I'm, I'm all for living in a cave. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) We'll start a commune. (laughs) No, we shouldn't live in caves because we're called to talk about our faith. And that's one of the core tenets of the Bible that we're supposed to go out into the world and spread the gospel. And you can't really do that 
if you live with all your close friends in a cave. Mm -hmm. I do think God wants us to be not just victims of the culture, but in fact, culture setters and to have a strong voice and to speak the truth boldly, but with wisdom for God. Yeah. I look at the example of Jesus and his culture is so homogeneous. Mm. You're talking about Jews who have an, an accepted body of doctrine. You have the Torah, the law of Moses, you have so many cultural assumptions about you know what marriage means what hard work means they're all on the same page generally yeah i mean you have you have so much in common between the people in judea and galilee and jesus and his disciples and yet he was beset with conflict throughout Mm -hmm. his entire ministry they're always criticizing him and he criticized them as well and Jesus is the perfect man. He's the, he's the quintessential man who, who gets it right. Every time you could get it wrong, he gets it right. Mm-hmm. And yet he's out of phase with his culture. I think if we look at the example of Jesus, you know, he's accessible. He's participating in society to some mm-hmm. degree. He's not running for political office, but yeah. he is definitely discussing issues and bringing God's light to bear on different situations. So I think he's a good example. Well, I mean, obviously, as Christians, he is our example for how to navigate a culture. But that is a funny thought that it's a Bible-based culture. We certainly today do not live in a Bible-based culture. You go up to a random person at the mall, you don't know their background, you don't know how they grew up, you don't know if they have a chip on their shoulder about religion, about Mm -hmm. people coming up to them and talking to them in the mall. Right. You have no idea. Right. I want to read these theses of Walter Brueggemann. This is from his famous 19 theses. These are convictions I have. First, that everybody lives by a script. The script may be implicit or explicit, may be recognized or unrecognized, but everybody has a script. That's such a powerful line. (laughs) You know, I think of like a movie script, right? There is this hidden set of instructions behind the scenes working its way out in our lives yeah i remember hearing that immediately saying to myself i don't i don't live by a script on my own nobody tells me what to do i don't if you really think about it you can pull out things in your life where you're like yeah i didn't come up with that and i do that because it's like a stream you're not the source or the originator of the stream you're joining the stream and in so many areas of your life even though nobody wants to hear that they're living off of somebody else's script it's true. And that you have that initial feeling of, I don't want to think of myself that way. Yeah. But then once you get by it, that's the first step to actually getting out of that. Yeah, well, I think the illusion is that nobody's going to tell me what to do. And I'm my own man and I make my own decisions and I'm totally free. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually part of the script. Yeah, we've been scripted. Totally. To believe that. Yeah. yeah. He goes on, he says, Second, we get scripted. All of us get scripted through the process of nurture and formation and socialization and it happens to us without our knowing it you know our parents have scripted us they've scripted us in some ways that are really good probably in some ways that aren't as good and our teachers have scripted us in school and our friends have i mean i see it happening to my kids you know my son noah in particular is 10 years old now and he has neighborhood friends and they are they are like these serious influencers that just did not exist a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and suddenly he's, he's getting new ideas from outside of what his mother and I have told him or what the school is telling him. And so he's, he's getting scripted. And it, so it was with me. Uh, number three, 
Third, that the dominant scripting in our society is a script of technological, therapeutic, consumer militarism that socializes us all, liberal and conservative. I worked really hard on those four words, technological, therapeutic, military, consumerism. A lot of big words. <laughs> um, but I agree that it kind of comes at you from every angle, and it hits everyone, you know, regardless of their persuasion. Yeah, I think maybe we'll look at the next one, too. Fourth, that script enacted through advertising and propaganda and ideology, especially on the liturgies of television, promises to make us safe and to make us happy. So the way I under understand Brueggemann here, he's saying that technology, therapy, consumerism, and the military are ways that the world is telling us that we can become happy and safe. So in other words, if we get the right technology, we'll solve all the world's problems. Oh, if, if we could just get the right therapy, if we could just mm. discover how our minds work and how, mm. how we can get in touch with our true selves and reach our full human potential, if we could just get the right therapy, the right healing, then, then we'll be safe, then we'll be happy. If we just buy the right thing, if the military just conquers enough terrorists, then the world will be safe for democracy. So you have these ideas that are just floating out there in the culture, and the question is, can these things even deliver? So I think there, there are these different scripts out there, I, and I don't think Brueggemann's list is by any means exhaustive. I appreciate some of Tim Keller's work uh, where he identifies some other cultural forces and cultural narratives that are coming into our, our minds and our, and our hearts without us realizing it, uh, which we can talk about later. But the next one here, he says, Fifth, that script has failed. Every time John Kerry and George Bush open their mouth, it's clear that it has failed, that the script of military consumerism cannot make us safe, and it cannot make us happy. We may be the unhappiest society in the world. Sixth, that health for our society depends on disengagement from and relinquishment of that script of military consumerism. This is a disengagement and a relinquishment that we mostly resist and about which we are profoundly ambiguous. Seventh, it is the task of ministry to de-script that script among us, that is, to enable persons to relinquish a world that no longer exists and indeed never did exist. That slaps you right there. Yeah. Kind of this culture that you've created is like a world of fantasy. It's unlearning. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think the first step is to realize there are cultural forces, and I think also to bring in the biblical perspective that there is a devil, and in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul calls him the god of this world, or the god of this age, and that there are malevolent spiritual forces behind the scenes fomenting chaos. This is actually, even as I'm saying it, I'm thinking to myself, 
I've just sort of like violated plausibility here because I know that so many people find it so hard to believe in an actual Satan or spiritual forces because of our secular script of this age mm -hmm. that is nudging our normal towards scientific empiricism and the scientific method as the only way of finding out knowledge. You I know? think people are open to the idea of, of there being a spiritual realm, but not in a godly paradigm. So, I mean, you look at the success of some of the, some of the paranormal shows there, you know, they have, they have a box and it has a needle on it and they take it into a dark room and it starts, you know, ticking and yeah. those shows do really well. I think people want, it's the same, it's the same idea you get with, with aliens. People want to believe that there's something else, there's, there's something unquantifiable, there's a mystery. Yes. There is a spiritual realm. This is what the Bible says about it. Right. Kaiser Soze mm -hmm. once said, it's not a real person, it's from the Usual Suspects movie. He once said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Yeah. And if the devil is out there and he's scripting anything, it's, don't look at me. That's, that's an interesting um, sort of line that Brueggemann has where he says, it is the task of ministry to descript that script among us. Yeah. The Bible is 2,000 years old. In the early church, I don't think that that was the mission of the, the task of the ministry. Because, like you said, it was a very homogenous culture mm -hmm. that was still there. There wasn't necessarily a lot to descript as much as there was, mm -hmm. you know, a job of convincing people that this radical person who, you know, lived, say, 50 years ago and had a message that the Messiah, you know, right. that, w that was the job. Yeah, but they knew what Messiah meant and right, exactly. they could fit it into their theology. Kind of like Christ, it was, um, well, what Christ said, not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Christianity coming into the Jewish culture was, you know, if it had been accepted, it would have been a fulfillment of everything they were waiting for. Yeah. But if you look at it today, I agree with that statement that the task of ministry and the task of evangelizing is to descript people, is to sort of, because we have this culture now that it conditions us in certain ways, and it's going to be very hard to realistically guide somebody or, or help them or, you know, spread the message without sort of knocking down those, those cultural assumptions and those, th that learned behavior. The first thing is to get people the gospel in a way that they can understand. If someone can receive the gospel message, then that's like the seed that can then grow. But over time, rooting out these challenger beliefs or defeater beliefs to uh, what God says is right is very important. But I, I want to disagree with you slightly here, Dan. I think you're right when it comes to the immediate surroundings of Jesus, basically the land of Judea and Galilee, and to some degree Samaria as well. But Paul the Apostle is operating out there in, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Rome. The script in those days is Roman imperialism. Mm. And Caesar is Lord, and Caesar gets deified when he dies and becomes a god, and the new Caesar is then the adopted son, so that the man on the throne is called the Son of God and claims to be Lord and says he's the Savior of the world who brings peace and safety. So I think there's already this whole script in place mm -hmm. where... It's just a different one. Yeah, the Pax yeah. Romana, this time of Roman peace and su supremacy over the barbarians, and they've cleared the seas of pirates, and they've built roads, and they all lead to Rome. And, you know, if you just pay your taxes and offer some incense to Caesar's image, then he'll take care of you and your life will go well. If my history is correct here, 
both Peter and Paul died at the hands of Caesar in Rome in the 60s because they they just challenged the system. Going off script. Going off script, yeah, but part of their script is subversive, politically subversive, because they're claiming that this Jew, Jesus, is the rightful Lord of the world. I think a classic uh, example of kind of the rescripting in Paul's day is him on Mars Hill, where he does find common ground and he does, you know, he's learned in their poets. He kind of uses that kind of as a springboard, but then he rescripts and says, no, the gods are not of marble. You know, uh, he's a real person and, uh, you know, we are his offspring of flesh. You know, he finds common ground, but then he does go in and rescripts and shares the gospel. Yeah, that's a great example. If you challenge somebody's preference, for example, I believe that peanut butter cup ice cream is the best. Would you challenge that? Either yes. of you? I would, certainly. You, okay, so you both challenge me on that. So you're, if you challenge my preference of ice cream, it's not going to make me angry because that's sort of a minor thing and it's something I'm aware of that I, I have different than other people. But if you come in the room and you say to me, Sean, work is dumb. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on a second. My whole society thinks, well, maybe not my whole society, mm-hmm. but you know, generally people think that work is important and helpful and a way to make money. And in the ancient world, at the time of Jesus, at the time of Paul, you have this group of philosophers called the Cynics who, who basically went around saying, work is dumb and you're a sucker and you should become homeless like me because I'm truly free. If I want to walk around naked, I just do it. Well, there's certainly the modern equivalent. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying like you, you see somebody that challenges your script, you know, those like, sort of like harder a core, core underlying assumptions that nobody talks about. Yeah, it gets uncomfortable. Yeah, it mm-hmm. really can raise your ire. Like what happened with Paul, they were listening and he said, you know, you really shouldn't worship idols uh, because God's the creator. You shouldn't think he, he can be represented by stone. Mm-hmm. And then he says, God has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world through a man having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. And he's preaching Jesus as Messiah and judge there. And they're just like, hold on, did you say resurrection? Mm-hmm. And they just lost it because they all know deep in their bones that bodies are bad and souls mm-hmm. are immortal. It's a defeater. Yeah, so it's a total defeater for their for their view. And it's just, they literally just started laughing at him. And there were a few that believed, but the rest of them were just like, he thinks we're going to get our body back. And it yeah. was just hysterical. Ridicule. Yeah. If you're going to be a genuine Christian, you can't, really avoid no. that sort of thing happening from time to time. Not that you cause it or bring it about, but it is there. Okay, here's number eight. Eight, the task of descripting relinquishment and disengagement is accomplished by a steady, patient, intentional articulation of an alternative script that we say can make us happy and make us safe. Ninth, the alternative script is rooted in the Bible and is enacted through the tradition of the church. It is an offer of a counter-meta-narrative, counter to the script of technological, therapeutic, military consumerism. So this counter-script is what I understand to be the gospel message. It's the idea that there is a God who does care about the world. He made the world. Mm-hmm. He created it. He sustains it. He thinks he did a pretty good job, evidenced by the fact he said good like a million times mm-hmm. in Genesis chapter 1. 
and he's not going to scrap the world or evacuate the world, but save the world, and he's going to do that through his appointed, anointed one, the Messiah, who's going to come and establish God's rule on the world. And he died for our sins so that we could participate in that future, and God raised him from the dead, proving that he is the genuine Messiah. So I, I kind of told like a storyline there. That's the meta narrative that is going to be challenging all the other different think, isms of our time. I think it's important to sort of un- unpack that word, meta narrative. As I understand it, that means a comprehensive explanation for why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, and that phrase that he has, um, a counter meta narrative. So, what would be the standard secular meta narrative right now? Okay. If you want the secular meta narrative or the scientific meta narrative, it goes something like this. Once upon a time, a long time ago, all of the matter of the universe was compressed into an infinitely small singularity of infinite density that suddenly and for no reason exploded, creating the universe, which slowly cooled over billions of years. Gases collected into stars, and the stars exploded and made heavier elements and planets, and eventually life, by chance, sprung up on this world and evolved into who we are today. And eventually, the universe will run out of energy and result in heat death, although our sun will explode far before that. That's the current... I, 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 w- I wouldn't here. say that 9 out of 10 people believe that, but right. I would say that that is the official meta narrative of the scientific world. I mean, obviously, I put a negative spin on it. I think if we think about our culture, the meta narrative is much more complicated, or maybe not more complicated, but much less scientific. Yeah, know? I mean, you, well, you go to school, you get a degree, or you learn a trade, and you start a family, and you know it perpetuates itself. That's sort of the... I mean, if you want to talk about the American dream or whatever, you know, that's the... Yeah, what is the American dream these days? They say that the American dream no longer exists because the uh, wage gap is increasing. Ah. But, you know, we don't, we don't want to get into all that. My interest is that this idea of a counter-meta-narrative, this, this counter sort of story that explains why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing, going up to some of the other um, of Brueggemann's thesis is that if you look at a happiness index or whatever, people generally in the United States, we score pretty low on, on the happiness index, as far as I know. Hmm. I think that the narrative, the meta narrative that we're taught to follow, that isn't making people happy anymore, if it ever did. I wonder if it's something like discover who you truly are and what your mm-hmm. deepest longings are, and then find a way to pursue that dream wherever it leads, no matter what anybody say, says, so that you can be your authentic self right. and do that in such a way that makes a difference in the world, that gives your life purpose, and that expresses tolerance to other people. Similar to what you just said, against that really stark backdrop of, you know, bangs and stars burning out and stuff like that, we're really tasked with creating meaning yes. um, in the meantime. Yeah. And, you know, I guess we try to find fulfillment along with that, but left with no inherent meaning and... It's hard to do. Yeah, in a very cold universe. We're tasked with creating meaning. And I think we spend a lot of time convincing ourselves that our meaning is worth something and others as well. 
what you said before is that they say there is no absolute meta narrative anymore. I mean, that's the definition of postmodernism. There is no meta narrative agreed upon in the culture anymore. But there are still competing meta narratives. I don't think humans can go without right. some sort of mindset or a story that somehow gives meaning to their life. So, for example, the social justice meta narrative. You know, you find a cause and you pour yourself out for the for the people of the world that are in need and you you raise awareness and you make a difference then there's like the stoner video game meta narrative which is like it's more like the cynic philosophers like yeah who cares <laughs> just <laughs> just stay in the basement right. and nothing smoke, means anything smoke weed and everyone else is a sucker i'm living the good life yeah. you know and then you have you have the immigrant narrative, you know, and they, and they come into this country and they're like, we're going to work really hard and then our kids are going to have a college education and they're going to become doctors and lawyers and they're going to pay it forward and then we're going to bring more people over and there's this huge drive towards success and they're probably the ones that are most like the old American dream right. uh, and they're going to sacrifice whatever it takes. But these, all, are, these are all, just because it's not an agreed upon meta narrative. these are all meta narratives that people have. Mm-hmm. Right. And to the extent that these meta narratives work. I'm using air quotes. You know, some of them do. Some people do find meaning, but I think a lot of people, especially in this day and age, don't. They are questioning. You know, what is the meaning? Where is the meaning in my life? How do I? How do I get fulfilled? I mean, there's any number of self help books. There's any number of uh, techniques that that people do, and some of them are great. You know, some of them work. But I think you know when we're talking about that counter meta narrative that Brueggemann is talking about, the biblical meta narrative that checks all those boxes and it has everything in spades i mean you look at the bible and the bible is many things but one thing that it is is how humans are designed to live that's one way to describe the bible it's it's a it's a how-to of sorts a manual you know in a lot of ways if you talk to people today about their meta narratives they are trying to kind of erase yours and make it about them mm. um, and how, all the desires of our heart and the longing for there actually to be inherent value instead of us having to spend our lives scrounging it up. I think that's phenomenal and that we don't want to erase God's meta narrative with ours, but that we want to embrace his meta narrative and, and say, Lord, please fit me into your plan. Yeah, I mean, the gospel message, I think, is the script we offer the world. And I think it does tap into all the deepest longings and desires of any culture, honestly. Mm-hmm. Back to what you're saying about the Bible, Dan, I think there are parts of the Bible that are instruction on how to live, and it makes sense that if there is a God and God made us, then God would know how humans flourish best. Mm-hmm. And so it would be foolish not to listen to the inventor, the designer, when it comes to how he thinks the design should work best. But um, there are so many other parts of the Bible, too, that are, as we read them, they, they shape us just in the same way the culture can nudge us and rewrite what we think is normal, so can exposure to the Bible. So, for example, reading the Bible regularly, especially like the narrative portions where Jesus comes into a situation and does something unexpectedly, or even some of the stuff from Genesis where where Jacob shows favoritism to Joseph, mm-hmm. and it just destroys his family. Yeah. I mean, that's the Bible isn't moralized. It doesn't say, and therefore you shall not show favoritism to one child. It actually never says that anywhere in the entire Bible. But you look at what happened. Mm-hmm. You look at what happened, and that creates for you or adjusts for you in your own soul an intuition not to do that when you become a parent. 
by reading the Bible and really engaging, you know, not even like on a critical level, just sort of like just enjoying the storyline, it can have the same scripting effect. Yeah, observing the, outcomes. Yeah, that the culture mm-hmm. has. And I, I think that's really so important for us. I had this buddy that had a rule that, and he loved football, that however many hours he dedicated to watching football, he would read the Bible for just as much time. Mm. And he knows the Bible today better than almost anyone else <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, really, if it is the sort of the inside scoop of what God thinks about this or that, then we'd be fools not to read it. You know what I mean? Right. I think if all things being equal, if everybody sort of got the revelation that the Bible is correct and that's how we should live our lives, there would be a worldwide shortage of Bibles. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, yeah. but the trick is to getting getting to that place where people can recognize the Bible for what it is. And we keep using this word defeaters, and I don't know that everybody knows. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. You know, we're talking about our culture and, and skepticism and everything. And so a defeater can be... You know, if you're having a conversation with somebody that's not a Christian and they, you know, they like what you're saying, but no matter the merits of what you're saying, in their mind, cannot get past this idea, this defeater. I really like the approach of Tim Keller where he talks about, I think he calls it a gospel sandwich. No, he calls it a sandwich of three layers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so what what he talks about there, this is from his article, Deconstructing Defeater Beliefs, Leading the Secular to Christ. Mm -hmm. He talks about how what we can start with is a simple gospel summary that hooks into the cultural baseline narratives that people have. In other words, say the gospel, tell the gospel story in such a way that it makes sense to them from their point of view, and it seems very attractive. Not that they're going to believe in it, but that they're going to say, boy, I wish that was true. Right. Yes, of course, that would be great, but... Right. And then they right. go on with their... And then, once you have them there, I mean, that's that's really a good place to start. Then once you have them there, you say to them, but what? Yeah. Why don't you just accept that? I think it's beautiful. I, I believe in it. What? Well, and, then, say, and then you find out what they're... Yeah, I can't believe it's true. You know, like, I would love to think that and be as naive as you are. Right. Well, then you have to ask, well, like, what are those different reasons? You know, maybe they think science has disproved God, or they think that Christians are too narrow-minded, or that Christians use too much violence in history through the Crusades, or any number of, uh, of, mm-hmm. of these common... Defeaters. Defeaters mm-hmm. that people hold in their hearts. And what's so great about it, doing it this way, is rather than blindfolding yourself and throwing darts at the wall hoping to hit a bullseye you're asking them what are your bullseyes mm-hmm. tell me your bullseyes you it's know? having a conversation as opposed to just saying your message and get getting right, in and out right right the telemarketer approach is so so no, you have to connect on a conversational <laughs> level right. i think it speaks to the beauty of the gospel too that i believe no matter the defeaters and no matter the scripts of your culture our salvation through god has enough desirability to hit all those bullseyes you have to craft your approach and you have to understand the script you're up against you have to know where the defeaters are you know to deliver the message well but i believe it's desirable enough uh that you can get past all of those if you present it the right way and then once you're able to access the defeaters find out what they are and and deal with them competently or at least at least hear them out and offer some sort of rudimentary explanation then you can get right back to the gospel message again 
you can present the gospel in all its glory, and it will really hit their heart. But the defeaters are honestly they're like a uh, they're like a casing, like a hard mm-hmm. uh, protective layer around their heart. And so you can give them the gospel, and it just bounces right off, and and and, and they can even get offended at you. Like, because one of the cultural narratives we have is is ultra tolerance. So the idea is you cannot do evangelism because what you're doing is you're seeking to impose your beliefs about human flourishing on someone else. Even sharing the gospel could be inherently offensive to somebody. Right. So, so one way to deal with that one, I, I heard Tim Keller talk about this somewhere. He said that um, one time he was. He was in a coffee shop in New York City, and he was trying to evangelize somebody. And they stopped him in the middle, and they said, "What? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. What? What is this?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, I'm, I'm evangelizing you." And they said, "How dare you evangelize <laughs> me? Who do you think you are?" And he said, "Well, what do you? What's your take? What do you think we should all do?" And and the person said, "Well, I think religion is a very private matter, and that everyone should keep their religion to themselves." and not try to go and convince anyone else what to do. And he said to them, so you're evangelizing me. Your view of human flourishing is that everyone should be private, and you're trying to impose that on me right now. My view is that you should believe in God and the gospel message, and you know what? We're really just the same, so let's talk about which is better. Yeah, and even going further, that person, whatever your, your view is, you were evangelized at one point through your influences. Yeah. I had this professor, he was a very strong atheist, but I ended up connecting with him on Facebook uh, not too long ago because I needed a recommendation um, <laughs> to go to college. And he had gone to Harvard and I thought, oh, wow, this guy went to Harvard, so you know, I'll ask him. And we ended up becoming Facebook friends. And uh, I was promoting Easter at my church and did a little post about like five, five things you can do to get involved with Easter at Living Hope. And he got so upset that he made his declaration in the comments, I think religion should be a private matter, and then declared to the social universe, and that's why I regretfully have to unfriend you. And then he unfriended me, you know, gave me social excommunication for me, a pastor, promoting my own church on Easter on my own Facebook timeline. (laughs) So it didn't really feel very tolerant when he did that, but... Um, and again, not very private. And not very private. When you private. post it there yeah. publicly. Yeah. He wanted to convince me right. by this sort of like shock treatment that I should be like him. The motivation yeah. is the same. Right. So we're, we're all really the same. We're, we're all people who, yeah. who think we know what we're talking about. And we want others to think the same way as we do, at least on some issues. <laughs> I also think it's important to know in these interactions with people, never have I ever convince somebody or, or heard of somebody being convinced right on the spot and being, in fact, I'd be concerned if somebody, if you were talking to somebody and they were like, yeah, let's do it. You know, let me become a Christian. Like that would be concerning. So you're never going to convince somebody in, in the moment. We do have the opportunity though, um, you know, through conversations and after initial conversations to live out the authenticity of our faith in front of people. And it's a big responsibility, but at least certainly for me, I, I would never, um, you know, fall to my knees and convert in that moment. But through seeing, um, you know, the longevity and the authenticity of someone's faith lived out before me in a consistent kind of way, that would get my attention. I just heard this incredible story of this woman. She was a tenure-track professor at Syracuse University studying, um, I think she was like an English literature professor. She was an outspoken feminist lesbian. 
and she uh, wrote some some sort of piece in a local publication that was intentionally inflammatory towards religious people. She was on a, in her own words, campaign against stupid. And she really wanted to attack right-wing Christianity. And a pastor wrote in and was very reasonable and engaged some of her points and very hospitably suggested that she come over for dinner and gave his phone number. Of course, she threw it out after she read it. What is this? You know, and she threw it out. And then uh, later, later that night, she took it out of the garbage. And she's like, I can use this guy. He'll be my source. He'll be my unpaid insider to this right-wing wacko world that I'm writing this book, this research book, against. And so she goes over to his house. And, you know, of course, she's polite. And he's very friendly. And she meets his wife. And a lot of her cultural assumptions about what a Bible-believing Christian woman were immediately blown out of the water by his wife. And he didn't even share the gospel with her. He just loved her. And he showed her hospitality, and they had great conversations. And they pretty much the whole time, I think they disagreed Mm -hmm. um, during those conversations, but they carried it on in a respectful way. And over many times being together through his process of basically neighboring her, she eventually totally changed her mind, ended up getting married to a guy who was a pastor, a different pastor, and became like a really strong Bible-believing Christian. Mm. And it's like, well, how do you get from there to here? (laughs) Yeah. That was not one conversation. No. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But what it was was authentic Christianity before her eyes, and there is an attractiveness to it. You know, you look at the life of Jesus, like people were drawn to Jesus. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you can all think of people in in your own lives that you've been drawn to where you're like, hey, this person shows me how to love, or this person shows me what holiness means, or how to be an honest Christian in the workplace, or whatever. You know, we see these role models, and and they do do affect us in a positive Mm -hmm. way. Earlier in the discussion, we were talking about how, you know, we like to think that we're all independent and we're all in control of our lives and we're making our decisions and we're in control. The reason that idea is attractive that I'm in control of my life is because, you know, you're in the driver's seat and self-determination and countercultural things people are drawn to. But then if you look at the Bible, the whole rest of Romans 12 is completely countercultural. He's talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about verse 9 to the rest of the chapter is all going against the culture and being completely different, having a completely different script than everybody else has. Yeah, he says at the end of that, overcome evil with good. I remember watching this old, I think it was a Denzel Washington movie, where he was having, I have no idea what movie it was, but he was having a conversation in Spanish with somebody, and he was like this this hardened renegade who like goes out and kills people, but he's kind of a good guy. Yeah. Right. And uh, That's like every Denzel movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she says to him, she says to him something about his faith, and he quotes that verse, overcome evil with good, you know, and, and it was, he like quoted it in like a, a mocking way, like, you can't, there's no way you can do it. And I feel like that's a standard, that's another one of these scripts. Evil is always more powerful than good. Like, you look at Star Wars, like, the dark force is always strong. Like, they have lightning that come out of their hands. Yeah. Luke Skywalker never had lightning come out of his hands. Yoda never had lightning come out of his hands. You know, but the, the evil emperor can do it. We have this cultural idea that like evil is more powerful, but that's not the biblical view at all. The biblical view is that God is way more powerful than the devil and that mm-hmm. through the name of Christ, like his his people have authority over darkness. 
I don't think Paul's being poetic or cutesy at the last verse of Romans 12 when he says, overcome evil with good. Like he really, Mm -hmm. he's doing it himself and he believes that that is the norm for the people of God. And I think that's exciting. Yeah, It is exciting and it's attractive. Yeah, it is attractive. We can talk about how powerful, you know, the scripts of our culture are, but even in the example you just gave, Sean, about that pastor, um, you know, people are reading the scripts of your life and even if you're not throwing them at them, um, even if it's coming out more quietly and a little bit more subtly, it's powerful to see. People will be reading it, people will be taking it in, people may be changing their lives based on how um, effectively we can truly live it out. Yeah, telling somebody something is a lot less powerful than them seeing you do it yeah. and seeing mm-hmm. the outcome. I think at that time I brought my uh, ultimate Frisbee friend for that Thanksgiving dinner we had here. And uh, he showed up really late. And so, like, the whole idea is, like, this guy's a non-Christian. You know, we're going to bring him in. And and, uh, this is a dinner thing, so it's not like a regular Bible study. It's kind of like a, what do you call that, like a transition event. You know, the way we do our Thanksgiving dinner, this is like a week before a real Thanksgiving. The way we do it is we all have a a verse before our our place at the table. And you read your verse, and you say something you're thankful for that year, and then you go to the next person. So we're, like, halfway through this, and I'm like, this guy's never going to come. And... Suddenly he actually showed up and I'm like, oh, oh, you know, (laughs) but like everything was already going and it was Sarah Jane's turn. She read her verse just like the five, ten people before her. Yeah. But it was the first one he heard. So I'm like, I'm like, Sarah Jane, this better be good. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The pressure's on. (laughs) I didn't say, I didn't say a word. And uh, she just talked about how she's thankful for different things God's done in her life over the last year. And then the next person went and the next person went and the next person went. Then it got to him and he said, well, I'm not really religious and I don't go to church, but I'm thankful for my job. And then he read the verse and we went to the next person. It was like, wow, you know, this is, this is really cool to see how, you know, like each individual person is testifying to how God is so great by saying what they're thankful for. But uh, it, is, it is an important part of showing the culture what it is to be Jesus' people, I think. All right, so that's enough for today, right? Yeah. Next time, we'll come back and we'll talk about some specific aspect of our culture and how that is both good and bad and how the Bible can help us to come up with an even better way of thinking about things. So, do we have like a sign-off thing? Well, we could make one, but... So, we'll, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. <laughs> that was good. Well, that concludes our first ever off-script episode. What did you think? Please let us know by dropping a comment on restitutio.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to email updates on Restitutio while you're there so you can find out when new content becomes available. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of the Historical Jesus Class, where we look at how Jesus dealt with conflict. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.